It's Thursday, August 17th, 2023 for Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A trove, a tranche, a treasure chest. Ron DeSantis' debate strategy laid out for all, but for specifically Ron himself to see. The pack never back down is not legally able to coordinate with the candidate, DeSantis, or his campaign. So if DeSantis wanted to say, I don't know, back down, they couldn't tell him not to. But they are. They're telling him what to do. They're telling him to back down from engaging in criticism of Donald Trump during the first Republican debate on August 23rd. Their advice, just concentrate on ripping into Doug Burgum. No, no, it's not. It's actually to instead tangle with Vivek Ramaswamy, though there is no advice about rapping in the documents that are publicly available. So here's how it works. The documents were posted online on a corner of the internet, though that corner wasn't so obscure. It was the PAC's own in-house consultants giving advice to the candidate and I guess anyone else who knew the URL. So this means DeSantis and the PAC were not running afoul of election law. It is unclear if they knew that these Debate memos would make splashy headlines in Politico and the New York Times, giving away the DeSantis game, however. I'm going to guess not. And also, I don't want campaigns to break election law, but are you really telling me there is no way for a competent 21st century campaign, one aide to meet with a friend who knows a guy who works with the PAC and get some good advice to the candidate? Or here's a word for you, Snapchat. Those messages disappear pretty quickly. The documents run down, in all senses of the term, DeSantis's rival, well, other than the big rival, it tells DeSantis, or whoever knows where to find the documents, to watch out for Nikki Haley. She's going to call him divisive. Or it gives GRD the heads up that Tim Scott and Mike Pence were both gently critical of the governor. That, by the way, is the G in the GRD, Governor Ron DeSantis specifically over his stance on the black history curriculum. Good to know. And it also suggests, yes, Israel, some nicknames for Vivek Ramaswamy, fake Vivek or Vivek the fake. I don't know, nicknames. Does that really play into the strengths of Ron Sandbox? And if you're going to do nicknames, Ramaswamy, it's right there. It's right there for you. And if Ron goes fake Vivek, Trump's just going to say, I don't call him Vivek, I call him lie fake. You know, he's going he's gonna to double up on the nickname. Nah, I'll probably just mispronounce Vivek intentionally, unintentionally, intentionally, but that'll get a big cheer. But Trump could do whatever he wants to do. His super PAC isn't going to secretly publicly sneak him information. And if they do, he doesn't take information or advice. Also, he's not even attending the August 23rd debate, which DeSantis has some light criticisms of Trump not attending, that is. These light criticisms are, as I said, available for all to see, but none will probably work. They're available on a non-password-protected website that is compliant with election law, but unlikely to turn the actual election. On the show today, military recruitment is suffering. Is it the economy or something else keeping young men and women from putting down Call of Duty long enough to answer the Call of Duty? But first, the Iowa caucuses will be held in 151 days. So we are already talking about Biden's path or Trump's path or a little bit about Vivek's path. Actually, you just heard all the Vivek content you're going to get. But I figure if we're going to engage in that, we might as well do it with someone with stellar credentials, insane motivations. Amy Walter, editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report, up next. Lose his mouth in the music, the 
The presidential race is fascinating without being dynamic. It's like a staid oil painting, not a Goya, perhaps a Gainsborough. I suppose if you stare long enough, you will find something that you hadn't seen before, but it does seem to be staring at you from a pretty stolid place. Still, we could get inside some of the dynamics, see if anything can change, see why it is, what it is, and who better to do this with than Amy Walter, publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report, with Amy Walter. Hello, Amy. Welcome to The Gist. Um, Hello, Mike. That was a wonderful Mm -hmm. opening. I I very much appreciate how you described this presidential race. What piece of art would you liken it to? (laughs) uh, um, It is, it feels a little bit like you look out on a lake and it's frozen over. But Mm -hmm. you also know that at portions of this, there's some pretty thin ice. And you wonder, are we going to fall through? Are we not? Are we going to make it across? Right? It looks, because a frozen lake looks pretty boring too. Yes. Until you start stepping out onto it. But but you your point about it being both incredibly stable, but yet incredibly vol- potentially volatile is exactly right. That's where we are in politics, I think in general. Um, but we live in an era now where things we, again, we're assuming a whole bunch of things to be true that people are not going to suddenly wake up tomorrow and go, you know what, I've been voting democratic for 25 years, but you know, this next election I'm voting for a Republican or vice versa. Um, Mm -hmm. people are, are, are not splitting their tickets. They're voting more on tribalism, um, an identity than they are on on issues. And so we have a pretty stable base on the Democratic and Republican side that are pretty equal in the swing states. And so it's this very small movement, either between people who show up, right? Show people show up to the polls, people don't show up to the polls, independent voters, maybe they break by two points, four points for one side versus the other. Um just the the smallest movement has incredible repercussions because 10,000 votes now can be the difference between being president of the United States or not, or being in the majority in the Senate or not, or being 6,000 votes was the difference between being 6,000 votes nationally between Republicans being in the majority this last year or not. In So since I've been covering politics, uh, at least with the presidential race, it has always been the case that the Republicans are solid, the Democrats are solid. Well, let me change that a little bit. Uh, I was young when Ronald Reagan, you know, uh, captured a whole bunch of people who would later be called Reagan Democrats. And they're essentially white ethnics who once voted for FDR and Reagan brought them to his side. It was a landslide. But since then, the dynamic has been a solid base of Republicans, a solid base of Democrats, and a small sliver in the middle. And the entire election is decided by that sliver in the middle. And since I've been doing it, the sliver has gotten smaller, but still, that has been the rule. Almost no matter how small that sliver is, it could be one (laughs) guy named Steve from Pennsylvania will be vying for the sliver. Is that what's going on and what will go on in 2024? Uh, That, I think, is... is a fair way to look at it. Another way is, again, if we're going to get all philosophical today, Mike, um, was it the Greeks who had that saying about, you know, man can't 
cross the same river twice. He is different. The river is different, right? And mm-hmm. so every election, think about every election as a river. So, you know, the 2020 electorate does look different from the 2022 electorate, which will look different from the 2024 electorate, only in that, you know, if I showed up to vote in 2020, and we know this because we can see it in the data that folks um, run the numbers on, thanks to voter file and polling, they can put this together. Maybe I set out 2022, right? Mm-hmm. I vote in presidential election. I don't really care about the midterms. Or I didn't think it was important because we didn't have an important race. So those folks could be incredibly partisan or they could be motivated by a a particular issue. They don't identify as partisan, but obviously 2022, the issue of abortion access, right? That was a driving issue. In 2016, a whole bunch of people showed up to vote for Donald Trump, who probably hadn't been voting in a long time, if ever. Um, so I think that's another way to think about it is you've got this pool of people out there who are consistent voters. They show up election after election after election. And you're right. They're not changing their minds. They're not going between parties, but then there are the people that are kind of on the fringes, which there are a lot of those people who come in and out of the electorate and the issues motivating them could change from campaign to campaign. Now, if you're Democrats, your argument is, as long as Donald Trump is in the equation, we know who our core group of voters is. Like our coalition of anti-Trump voters is pretty solid and has shown up election after election. But when Donald Trump is gone, what does that coalition look like? Right. And there's other considerations, too, among Republicans. Sarah Longwell, as you know, picked this up in mm-hmm. her focus groups. Republicans were saying, well, I like those ideas, but why not have someone who could do them for two terms? You know, Donald Trump is term limited, although Donald Trump and paying attention to terms <laughs> in the Constitution, it's a little more of a gray area than with some other politicians. But the problem is for the someone other than Trump crowd is there people had a chance to look at one such candidate, Ron DeSantis, his theory of the case and their execution issues was I'm not going to, I'm going to establish myself as more anti-woke than him. Uh, DeSantis put his finger on that as a very important issue. I think DeSantis absolutely did make a credible case that he is to the right of Donald Trump on these wokeness issues. And the American or the Republican voters looked at it and said, yeah, not as important as whatever, how much I like Trump or how much uh, I don't like Ron DeSantis. I don't know. Is there time for another person? Maybe DeSantis could do it again. But is is there time for another person within the Republican primary to sort of prosecute a case? I know Chris Christie has one. He's polling it. You tell me two or three percent, which is like, I'm Trump with competence, right? DeSantis was I'm Trump, but more anti-woke. There are other, you know, Ron Swarmy is, I'm Trump with youth. But is there time for that message to actually take hold? And do we have evidence that it's the right message? Because it seems like the I'm really anti-woke message seemed like a good message to me, an outsider. Um, so let's put it this way, uh, or think about it this way. I think if we go back in time to the end of 2022, that was a window in which Donald Trump looked incredibly vulnerable, right? Not yes. just because of how poorly Republicans did in the primary, I mean, in the midterm elections and how many of the candidates Donald Trump 
backed in the primaries, ended up losing. But do you remember when he, he hosted his kickoff campaign, his re-election campaign, so to speak, in November, soon after that election. And, you know, the response was he looks kind of old and he looks kind of tired. And, you know, there was a a kind of a, a, a again, a moment there where it's like turning the page, moving on, looked appealing. And Ron DeSantis was right there. Right. And he it had just that. won re-election by an incredible exactly. amount. And Florida was a state where exactly. the Republican gains were real. And all of those Trump candidates and election deniers got uh, lost or lost bigger than like candidates. Yeah, all that was going on. All that's going on. So here's that perfect window of, of opportunity. And, you know, look, at the end of all of this, we'll be able to have a better sense for, you know, which came first kind of issues. But, you know, the argument is either one, DeSantis's decision to not strike while the iron was hot, to not go in at his at Trump's most vulnerable point and just keep driving the message that I'm the guy who can turn the page, the the gold watch strategy, right? He's done such a great job for America. Love him. But, you know, maybe it's time to stick to what you do really well down there in Mar-a-Lago let me take the torch, right? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be he's terrible and he loves, but, and also I can do all those Trump things. I can be the woke warrior and I'm going to get rid of the deep state and all of that. Okay. But he didn't because he went back to Tallahassee and then Donald Trump has the vacuum to himself, which he fills quite well. And then what else fills that vacuum? The indictments. And now that window of opportunity closed. And all we do now is talk about Donald Trump and Donald Trump being wronged and Donald Trump, again, if you're the Republican primary electorate and all of his opponents and Republican leadership agree with Donald Trump that he's been wronged. So the message is con- continuing that this guy, right, is the one right. we should be rallying around. I mean, there are two Republicans, Asa Hutchinson and Will Hurd, who will tell you, no, he's wrong. And those guys yeah. don't have uh, one potential delegate to scratch together. Yeah, and same with Chris Christie. Chris Christie yeah. is, you know, I, I always joke with um, folks who talked to me, like, what year, uh, when was this? You know, like when when um, John Huntsman was running, I don't know if you remember him, in 2012, yes. Or in this case, Chris Christie this year. Yeah. You'll have Utah Dem- governor and yeah. somewhat moderate. Somewhat and, moderate. Uh, guy who right? spoke Chinese and like the Democrats dream Republican. <laughs> this is exactly that was exactly my point. So it's Chris Christie, right? Yeah. So when they say to me, Well, why aren't Republicans why why don't they like Chris Christie more? And I say, Because you like him. Right? Yes. If you yes. like him, they will hate him. And same with Dem- Republicans who come up to me and go, Why don't Democrats just why don't they just nominate Joe Manchin? Mm-hmm. Because you like Joe Manchin. The Democratic primary base is not going to vote for Joe Manchin. So this is, like, for Chris Christie, I think this is super fun for partisan Democrats to watch him. They love this. It's not it's not going to get traction with, yeah. you know, anybody except for those who really, really don't want to see Donald Trump win. So what is the path for anyone uh, who's a Republican to get traction? Some great debate performance, uh, 
all, color me skeptical. Yeah. Uh, surprise third place finish in Iowa. I know. Um, it is true that the media will want a story and will want to rally behind someone who shows any amount of life. But tell me who everyone's trying to be that. Everybody's person. trying to path? figure that out. Yeah. Like if I could figure that out, you know, I could sell that and make a whole lot of money. Nobody can figure it out. And they're all trying. And this is the hard thing. You say, well, you have to go through Trump to beat him. Totally agree, right? This idea that you're going to kind of go around him again. I can outwoke him. Mm-hmm. I can do better with the deep state, right? All of this, like, I'm going to go here and there and around and not, you've got to go through him. But, but on what, right? Because they go in straight after him. He is uh, guilty as charged. No, that doesn't work. Uh, right. He is less electable. Well, I don't know. I just saw a poll out this week that had significant majority of Republicans believing he is the strongest candidate to take on Biden. And again, I think the answer is I don't. Uh, there are these ads that are being run by one of these outside groups um, that is not taking a side for a certain Republican candidate, but wants to see Donald Trump lose. And it's basically this message. It's always one person straight to camera saying, look, love Donald Trump, voted for him twice. Uh, I think, you know, what they're doing to him is really unfair. But you know what? I'm exhausted. I I, I just, I don't think we can keep doing this, you guys. Like, he can't, he can't win. And even Mm -hmm. if he does, he's going to spend all of his time caught up in himself. And I think that's the other message is, look, even if he does get back in, what is he going to focus on? He's going to focus on Donald Trump. He's not going to focus on you. He says he's doing it for you. He's not doing it for you. Um, That is, again, that's a, that's a very nuanced argument. Yeah. Um, But that is to me, the only one that could have, relevance. And again, we won't know much about it until we get closer to the fact where voters who today are equating, Republican voters who are equating defending Trump with voting for Trump. Can you defend Trump and think he is wronged, but also think maybe it's time to put somebody else on top of the ticket? I want to ask you this about Joe Biden. We all know the approval, disapproval, um, the economy is getting better. Maybe he'll start getting credit for that. A couple questions about that. One is when we look at historical disapproval trends, they tell us something, or do they? Is it time to just throw, given our um, polarization, our um, just general malaise, is it time to throw out historical lessons about where incumbents are in terms of approval and disapproval? I know it's such a it's such a great question. And in in twenty twenty two, I looked at this group of people who said they somewhat disapproved of. Joe Biden. I called them the meh voters, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't really yeah, like, yeah. I, and we know who many of those people You could have called them the de meh crats. Oh, this is why I need Pesca to be my publicist. <laughs> That's yours. Free. That's free. 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 Do that. Yeah. Um, they broke decisively for Democrats at the end of the day. And we saw it in polling leading up to the election where these voters were saying they they weren't really into Joe Biden, but they were still voting for Democrats. And when you look at um, who they are, 
right? They were voters that, like you said, they weren't, they weren't feeling great about the state of the economy, but they still picked Democrats over Republicans because other issues were motivating them. And so you're right. The question and right direction, wrong track is another one. That yeah. used to be the gold standard. Well, if you ask me, are things going in the right direction or are they on the wrong track? My answer for wrong track could be very different from your answer for wrong track, right? It used to be, oh, well, wrong track means people are upset with the economy. No, it could mean I'm really worried about the climate. I yeah. don't think that, right? I'm worried about January 6th happening again. Right, and so right. I think we're asking this question in a way that fails to really get at the heart of what it is that people are frustrated or disappointed, whatever we're going to use for the reason that they're saying they disapprove of him. Yeah. I, you probably know this from sports statistics, but there's a certain kind of statistic that's next generation where they take into account the background conditions in baseball. It's OPS plus in football, mm. it's DVOA, which is defense adjusted um, um, above opponents. The point is, it's not just as if a guy hits well, it's do you hit well compared to how the league is hitting? Mm. It would be very interesting. There are other social studies and social surveys out there to get a baseline of how happy Americans are or where the temperature of America is in terms of not even their own personal satisfaction. Weirdly, people are generally happy, but where they are in terms of society, uh, independent of the president, use that as the baseline and then map right track on wrong track on top of it. And I think we'd find that in the last 20 years as a uh, doomerism and maybe rational doomerism has taken hold, it's punished every incumbent and will continue to do so on right track, wrong track. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very good. Well, you should invent it. I should invent it. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm. I'm. See, I'm more wordsmith. So Democrats is where I'm. Gonna I know spend that's most where you, yeah, you really yeah. shine. And look, this is where that. This is where um, you know, qu qualitative qualitative research becomes super important. Getting at what it is that people are worried about. And I, I was sitting in a focus group actually a couple of weeks back with a group they called disaffected Democrats. These are some of those. Democrats, um, who they're, they're disappointed in a whole lot of things, but honestly, when you say to them, okay, well, what, what are you really upset about? Like what's going, what's going on? Yes. Uh, cost of living inflation still a problem, but, um, they're also worried about abortion access. They're still concerned about other sort of some of the language and rhetoric coming from Republicans. And then when you say, well, I mean, are you going to vote for Biden or, you know, they're like, well, of course. I mean, yeah, I yeah. can't I can vote for Donald Trump. But um, that's a, the question. They are going to vote. These MEV voters are voters. They are and, voters. And so, right. And so the concern is if thing, if people are so disaffected or are so unwilling to give Biden anything other than, uh, so unwilling to give him the higher marks and somewhat disappointed. The concern is they just won't come out. They'll sit this one out. Is that bad? I understand why it's a concern, but if Donald Trump is running, is that really right. going to happen? That's right. And it's, that's a, uh, the really key question. And are there meth voters on the other side? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, if you look at the polls that say, you know, anywhere from 13, 20 so percent of Republicans think, yeah, Donald Trump did something illegal, right? Now, 
some of those folks will still vote for Donald Trump. Or will they say, you know, I just I just can't. Right. I, I can't vote for a Democrat. No way. But maybe I just sit at home or mm-hmm. maybe I vote for the third party candidate um, or I skip the top of the ticket and I, or I write in Mickey Mouse or whatever. Um, so I think, yes, Democrats are incredibly worried about the fact that there are these disaffected voters and especially in uh, among younger voters who they need as as a key part of their coalition, that those folks in 2016, many of them voted for Jill Stein or voted, decided to sit at home. Um, And that could cost Biden the election. And I think that's totally rational um, worry. At the same time, we know, yes, Donald Trump has a base of support that will turn out all the time, no matter what, for him. But there's also a group of voters that maybe that voted twice for him that are, you know, they're they're also disaffected and disappointed. Well, is there data? Is there evidence? Have you picked up anything that would indicate that the somewhat disappointed vi- Biden voter is more likely to ultimately be a Biden voter than the somewhat disappointed Trump voter is to be a Trump voter? Well, we know from past experience that in 2020, the somewhat disapproving of uh, of Trump voted overwhelmingly for Biden. In 2022, the somewhat disapproving of Biden voted overwhelmingly for Democrats. So there was a difference. Those people who said, I somewhat disapprove of Trump voted pretty much like the people who said they strongly disapproved of Donald Trump. But again, that was a midterm general election. So so we don't, I think the short answer is no, we don't know who or what or how those voters are are going to perform, but they are the group to pay a lot of attention to as we go forward. Mm-hmm. I often, you often read stories about people within the Democratic coalition, people who represent interest groups, raising the flag saying, don't take us for granted, or the unexcited among us, a normally reliable Democratic vote might stay home. Uh, there's uh, some sort of summit on black men making this uh argument. The youth are always said to be in this position, although I think sometimes the uh, effect of the youth vote gets overstated. That said, is there evidence there's, it could happen? Is the evidence that that dynamic will be at play or is the evidence more that, yeah, there might be the risk of if you don't exactly address the concerns of this group, they'll stay home. But the greater likelihood is Donald Trump will take care of all the motivation that's needed for these groups of normally Democratic voters. And I think that point, Mike, is your latter one, that Donald Trump helps to take care of it for us continues. And it's not just Donald Trump, but it is Donald Trump plus all of these right. issues. Trump in front plus of the Dobbs Court, plus right? Dobbs, book bans or yeah. Right. Yeah, plus yeah. whatever else. Right. All of that is enough of a motivating factor. That's right. And, um, but right. 10,000 votes here and there. Eh, you should be very concerned that even if 10 people decide to stay home, that could have an impact. 
Amy Walter is the publisher and editor-in-chief of The Cook Political Report. I know The Cook Political Report is an esteemed brand name, but why not The Walter Political Report? Just throwing it out there. It is The Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. Amy, thank you so much. Um, Thank you so much, Mike. It's been really fun. And now the spiel. The army might be rolling along, but they're scraping the battle of the caissons for their latest recruiting classes. The U.S. military is coming up short on recruitment goals. The army wanted 60,000 recruits. They got 45,000. The other branches just barely made their numbers. The question is why? Well, one reason is that fewer and fewer young Americans pass muster. Because of disqualifications related to obesity, educational attainment, mental health, and criminal records, the percentage of Americans eligible to undergo basic training is, ready for this, 23%. It's the lowest ever. Now, in times of war, requirements loosen up. Waivers are given. Waivers are still given. There are programs for the overweight to qualify, but the Army will not waive a history of self-harm after the age of 14, or if you take ADHD with medication. The Air Force, however, will accept people with ADHD if they've been successfully non-medicated for 15-plus months. The other big problem for the military, aside from the disqualified, are the disinclined. Only 9% of the young, ages 16 to 21, say they're interested in military service. Why? Well, the Wall Street Journal thinks they have an answer. They ran an op-ed by Jimmy Byrne, a student at Yale Law School, a former U.S. Army armor officer, titled, What if they gave a war and everybody was woke? I don't know. Is it a war of aggression or a war of microaggression? Uh, woke, a woke service force would probably cut down on casualties. I don't know, but I've been told. I don't know, but I've been told. About heteronormative gender roles. The theme of that essay was that woke messaging is driving away the very recruits that are usually quite rah-rah for the military, he argues. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin mandated that every military unit conduct a stand-down to confront extremism in the ranks. That is an example of woke, not to have Nazis running around, I guess. He also writes, the chief of naval operations, Admiral Mike Gilday, added Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist to his professional reading list for sailors. Yes, for a time, the Kendi book was one of 12 on the non-mandatory list, but now it's off. And extremism in the ranks should be confronted? No. Then there's the messaging and the ads, which was a worry of Fox host Brian Kilmeade as he interviewed Air Force officers about recruitment. I'm watching these ads. I used to love watching the ads. It was inspiring. The Marines, be all you can be. And a lot of these woke ads don't have anything to do with the military. In fact, I don't know who you're trying to recruit with some of this stuff. Playing during that Fox segment was a visual from an animated ad for the military, which follows a young girl in her decision to enlist. Here's the, I guess, offensive content, woke content from that ad. Although I had a fairly typical childhood, took ballet, played violin, I also marched for equality. I like to think I've been defending freedom from an early age. When I was six years old, one of my moms had an accident that left her paralyzed. Doctors said she might never walk again. But she tapped into my family's pride to get back on her feet, eventually standing at the altar to marry my other mom. And then the real kicker, she's a real person. I'm U.S. Army Corporal Emma Malone Lord, and I answered my calling. 
Granted, Fox viewers, average age 66, might not want to sign up after seeing that ad, but it probably won't offend an actual 16 to 21 year old. They might find it inspiring, and if they find it appalling, maybe you don't want that person serving alongside Emma. For all the hypothesizing about wokeness hurting recruitment, there are much better explanations. The economy is a big one. When economic opportunities abound, as they do now, a life in the armed services seems less attractive. That's always been the case. And it's not people allergic to wokeness, real or perceived, who aren't joining. But according to a substack called the Missing Data Depot, it's Democrats, white Democrats, who are far less inclined to join than they once were. In 2015, according to the military's own statistics, 18.6% of white Democratic men express a desire to serve in the military. This is compared to 19.9% of non-Democratic men. So it's very close and very high. By 2021, the number of white Democrats who expressed a desire to serve in the military dropped to 2.9%. If anything, this argues for outreach to white Democrats, of whom a white girl who attends protests and has two mommies might be a decent proxy. You will be heartened to know that Fox's guest for that segment, Major General Edward Thomas, when asked about the woke ads, didn't fall for the diversionary maneuver. What you're going to see uh, is an opportunity to serve. It's about patriotism. It's about America. It's about joining a service that provides opportunity, the best community they could ever ask for, and a, and a purpose that's right. just undeniable. You're going to see fighters. You're going to see bombers. You're going to see special operations forces. That's what we're selling to America. And we are giving them an opportunity to come be a part of us and be an American airman. Or air women. Can I say that without being accused of cowardice or treason? The military and society has always had a push and pull relationship. The military promises to mold young minds and bodies, offering them a chance to be all they can be. But their recruitment efforts are necessarily molded by the pool that they're working with and shouldn't be dictated by nostalgia or prescriptive concerns from the old guard. The United States all-volunteer military is one of the most impressive social engineering projects ever accomplished. To not meet society where it is, but also to expect future success, that itself is a battle they're never going to win. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST producer. Joel Patterson's the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pasca is CLO of Peachfish Projects, Productions, and Abatement Services. The GIST is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu, Gperu, Duperu. And thanks for listening. I don't know, but I've been told. I don't know, but I've been told. Eskimo pussy is mighty cold. Eskimo pussy is...